Chapter Three of No Great Magic by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. Sound a dumb shoe. Enter the three fat fall sisters with a rock, a threed, and a pair of shears. Old play. My sleeping closet is just a cot at the back end of the girl's third of the dressing room, with a three-panel screen to make it private. When I sleep, I hang my outside clothes on the screen, which is pasted and thumbtacked all over with the New York City stuff that gives me security. Theater programs and restaurant menus, clippings from the Times and the Mirror, a torn-out picture of the United Nations building with a hundred tiny gay paper flags pasted around it, and hanging in an old hairnet a home-run baseball autographed by Willie Mays. Things like that. Right now, I was jumping my eyes over that stuff, asking it to keep me located and make me safe, as I lay on my cot in my clothes with my knees drawn up and my fingers over my ears so the louder lines from the play wouldn't be able to come noising back around the trunks and tables and bright-lit mirrors and find me. Generally I like to listen to them, even if they're sort of sepulchral and drained of overtones by their crooked trip, but they're always tense-making. And tonight, I mean this afternoon, no. It's funny I should find security in mementos of a city I daren't go out into. No, not even for a stroll through Central Park, though I know it from the pond to Harlem Mere, the Met Museum, the Menagerie, the Ramble, the Great Lawn, Cleopatra's Needle, and all the rest. But that's the way it is. Maybe I'm like Jonah in the Whale reluctant to go outside because the whale's a terrible monster that's awful scary to look in the face and might really damage you gulping you a second time yet reassured to know you're living in the stomach of that particular monster and not a seventeen tentacled one from the fifth planet of aldebaran it's really true you see about me living in the dressing-room the boys bring me meals, coffee and cardboard cylinders and doughnuts and little brown grease-spotted paper sacks, and malts and hamburgers and apples and little pizzas, and Maud brings me raw vegetables, carrots and parsnips and little onions and such, and watches to make sure I exercise my molars grinding them and get my vitamins. I take spit baths in the little john. Architects don't seem to think actors ever take baths even when they've browned themselves all over playing Pindarus the Parthian in Julius Caesar, and all my shut-eye is caught on this little cot in the twilight of my NYC screen. You'd think I'd be terrified being alone in the dressing-room during the wee and morning hours, let alone trying to sleep then, but that isn't the way it works out. For one thing, there's apt to be someone sleeping in, too, Maudie especially. And it's my favorite time, too, for costume mending and reading the variorum and other books, and for just plain way out dreaming. You see, the dressing room is the one place I really do feel safe. Whatever is out there in New York that terrorizes me, I'm pretty confident that it can never get in here. Besides that, there's a great big bolt on the inside of the dressing-room door that I throw whenever I'm all alone after the show. Next day they buzz for me to open it. It worried me a bit at first, and I had asked, Sid, but what if I'm so deep asleep I don't hear, and you have to get in fast? And he had replied, Sweetling, a word in your ear. 
Our own Beauregard Lassiter is the prettiest picklock unjailed since Jimmy Valentine and Jimmy Dale. I'll not ask where he learned his trade, but tis sober truth upon my honor." And Beau had confirmed this with a courtly bow, murmuring, "'At your service, Miss Greta.' How do you jigger a big iron bolt through a three-inch door that fits like Maudie's tights?" I wanted to know. He carries lodestones of great power and divers' subtle tools," Sid had explained for him. I don't know how they work it, so that some transverse three cop or park official doesn't find out about me and raise a stink. Maybe Sid just throws a little more of the temperament he uses to keep most outsiders out of the dressing-room. We sure don't get any janitors or scrub-women, as Martin and I know only too well. More likely he squares someone. I do get the impression all the company's gone a little way out on a limb, letting me stay here, that the directors of our theater wouldn't like it if they found out about me. In fact, the actors are all so good about helping me and putting up with my antics, though they have their own, Danu digs that I sometimes think I must be related to one of them, a distant cousin or sister-in-law or wife, my God, because I've checked our faces side by side in the mirrors often enough, and I can't find any striking family resemblances. Or maybe I was even an actress in the company, the least important one, playing the tiniest roles like Lucius in Caesar and Bianca in Othello, and one of the little princes in Dick the Three Eyes and Fleance and the gentlewoman in Macbeth, though me doing even that much acting strikes me to laugh. But whatever I am in that direction, if I'm anything, not one of the actors has told me a word about it, or dropped the least hint, not even when I beg them to tell me or try to trick them into it, presumably because it might revive the shock that gave me agoraphobia and amnesia in the first place and maybe this time knock out my entire mind, or at least smash the new mouse-in-a-hole consciousness I've made for myself. I guess they must have got by themselves a year ago and talked me over and decided my best chance for cure, or for just bumping along half-happily, was staying in the dressing-room rather than being sent home. Funny, could I have another? Or to a mental hospital? And then they must have been cocky enough about their amateur psychiatry, and interested enough in me, the white horse knows why, to go ahead with the program almost any psychiatrist would be bound to yike at. I got so worried about the setup once, and about the risks they might be running, that, gritting down my dread of the idea, I said to Sid, Siddy, shouldn't I see a doctor? He looked at me solemnly for a couple of seconds, and then said, Sure, why not? Go talk to Doc right now, tipping a thumb toward Doc Pyskov, who was just sneaking back into the bottom of his makeup box, what looked like a half-pint from the flask I got. I did, incidentally. Doc explained to me Kraepelin's classification of the psychoses, muttering, as he absent-mindedly fondled my wrist, that in a year or two he'd be a good illustration of Korsakov's syndrome. They've all been pretty darn good to me in their kooky ways, the actors have. Not one of them has tried to take advantage of my situation to extort anything out of me, beyond asking me to sew on a button or polish some boots, or at worst clean the washbowl. Not one of the boys has made a pass I didn't at least seem to invite. 
and when my crush on Sid was at its worst, he shouldered me off by getting polite, something he only is to strangers. On the rebound I hit Beau, who treated me like a real southern gentleman. All this for a stupid little waif, whom anyone but a gang of sentimental actors would have sent to Bellevue without a second thought or feeling. For, to get disgustingly realistic, my most plausible theory of me is that I'm a stage-struck girl from Iowa who saw her twenties slipping away, and her sanity too, and made a dash to Greenwich Village, and went so ape on Shakespeare, after seeing her first performance in Central Park, that she kept going back there night after night, Christopher Street, Penn Station, Times Square, Columbus Circle, see, and hung around the stage door, so mousy but open-mouthed that the actors made a pet of her. And then something very nasty happened to her, either down at the village or in a dark corner of the park, something so nasty that it blew the top of her head right off, and she ran to the only people in place where she felt she could ever again feel safe. And she showed them the top of her head with its singed hair and its jagged ring of skull, and they took pity. My least plausible theory of me, but the one I like the most, is that I was born in the dressing-room, cradled in the top of a flat theatrical trunk, with my ears full of Shakespeare's lines before I ever said Mama, let alone lamp the TV. Hush walked when I cried by whoever was off stage, old props my first toys, trying to eat crepe hair my first indiscretion, sticks of grease paint my first crayons. You know. I really wouldn't be bothered by crazy fears about New York changing and the dressing-room shifting around in space and time if I could be sure I'd always be able to stay in it and that the same sweet guys and gals would always be with me and that the shows would always go on. This show was sure going on. It suddenly hit me, for I let my fingers slip off my ears as I sentimentalized and wish-dreamed and I heard, muted by the length and stuff of the dressing-room, the slow beat of a drum, and then a drum-note in Maudie's voice, taking up that beat as she warned the other two witches, A drum, a drum, Macbeth doth come! Why, I'd not only missed Sid's history-making and breaking Queen Elizabeth prologue, kicking myself that I had, now it was over, I'd also missed the short witch scene with its famous Fair is foul, and foul is fair, the bloody sergeant scene where Duncan hears about Macbeth's victory, and we were well into the second witch scene, the one on the blasted heath, where Macbeth gets it predicted to him he'll be king after Duncan, and is tempted to speculate about hurrying up the process. I sat up. I did hesitate a minute, then, my fingers going back toward my ears, because Macbeth is specially tense-making and when I've had one of my brain-wavery fits, I feel weak for a while and things are blurry and uncertain. Maybe I'd better take a couple of the barbiturate sleeping pills Maudie manages to get for me and—but no, Greta, I told myself, you want to watch this show. You want to see how they do in those crazy costumes. You especially want to see how Martin makes out. He'd never forgive you if you don't. So I walked to the other end of the empty dressing-room, moving quite slowly, and touching the edges here and there, the words of the play getting louder all the time. 
By the time I got to the door, Bruce Bunko was saying to the witches, If you can look into the seeds of time, and say which grain will grow and which will not, those lines that stir anyone's imagination with their veiled vision of the universe. The overall lighting was a little dim. Afternoon, fading already, a late matinee, and the stage lights flickery, and the scenery still a little spectral flimsy. Oh, my mind wavery fits can be Lulu's. But I concentrated on the actors, watching them through the entrance gaps in the wings. They were solid enough. Giving a solid performance, too, as I decided after watching that scene through and the one after it, where Duncan congratulates Macbeth, with never a pause between the two scenes in true Elizabethan style. Nobody was laughing at the colorful costumes. After a while I began to accept them myself. Oh, it was a different Macbeth than our company usually does, louder and faster, with shorter pauses between speeches, the blank verse at times approaching a chant. But it had a lot of real guts, and everybody was just throwing themselves into it, Sid especially. The first Lady Macbeth scene came. Without exactly realizing it, I moved forward to where I'd been when I got my three shocks. Martin is so intent on his career and making good that he has me the same way about it. The Thanis started off, as she always does, toward the opposite side of the stage and facing a little away from me. Then she moved a step and looked down at the stage parchment letter in her hands and began to read it, though there was nothing on it but scribble, and my heart sank, because the voice I heard was Miss Neffer's. I thought and almost said out loud, Oh, damn it, he flunked out, or Sid decided at the last minute he couldn't trust him with the part. Whoever got Miss Neffer out of the ice-cream cone in time? Then she swung around, and I saw that no, my God, it was Martin, no mistaking. He'd been using her voice. When a person first does a part, especially getting up in it without much rehearsing, he's bound to copy the actor he's been hearing doing it. As I listened on, I realized it was fundamentally Martin's own voice, pitched a trifle high. Only some of the intonations and rhythms were Miss Neffer's. He was showing a lot of feeling and intensity, too, and real Martin-like poise. You're off to a great start, kid, I cheered inwardly. Keep it up. Just then I looked toward the audience. Once again I almost squeaked out loud, for there, close to the stage, in the very middle of the reserve section, was a carpet spread out. And sitting in the middle of it on some sort of little chair, with what looked like two charcoal braziers smoking to either side of her, was Miss Neffer with a string of extras in Elizabethan hats with cloaks pulled around them. For a second it really threw me, because it reminded me of the things I'd seen, or thought I'd seen, the couple of times I'd sneaked a peek through the curtain hole at the audience in the indoor auditorium. It hardly threw me for more than a second, though, because I remembered that the characters who speak Shakespeare's prologues often stay on stage and sometimes kind of join the audience and even comment on the play from time to time, Christopher Sly and his attendant lords and the shrew for one. Sid had just copied and, in his usual style, laid it on thick. Well, bully for you, Siddy, I thought, 
I'm sure the witless New York groundlings will be thrilled to their cold little toes, knowing they're sitting in the same audience as good Queen Liz and attendant courtiers. And as for you, Miss Nepper, I added a shade invidiously, you just keep on sitting cold in Central Park, warmed by dry ice smoke from braziers, and keep your mouth shut and everything'll be fine. I'm sincerely glad you'll be able to be Queen Elizabeth all night long, just as long as you don't try to steal the scene from Martin and the rest of the cast and the real play. I suppose that camp chair will get a little uncomfortable by the time the fifth act comes tramping along to that drumbeat, but I'm sure you're so much in character you'll never feel it. One thing, though, just don't scare me again pretending to work witchcraft with a virginals or any other way, okay? Swell. Me? Now I'm going to watch the play. End of chapter 3